Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm just going to, I'm going to go into the cemetery now. And the woods above Bakewell are turning pink in the sunset, which is pretty amazing. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to go up and see where Wendy's last walk was. What have you thought about today? We've learned a lot more than we thought we would, I thought. How the, um, the legacy of the murder of Wendy Sewell lives on and really affects people really viscerally, emotionally even now surprise so and the, uh, the crows just sound a bit fitting at this point John, can you tell us what we can see in the pictures? Well, one of the pictures here is, is um, the aftermath of the attack, black and white photograph. It shows uh, a policewoman in the background, really, and uh, Wendy's clothes uh, scattered there and the pickaxe handle on the, on the path. This was supposedly taken within a few hours of the attack, which, you know, supposedly shows well, the scene of crime in terms of what happened. All the pictures on here showing the shoes that she was wearing, her clothes, underwear, etc., with chalk marks on the ground to sort of identify, you know, what's what. Wendy Saul was viciously attacked in a cemetery in Bakewell, a small rural town in Derbyshire, in 1973. She died two days later. The problem with some of these is that um, this wasn't a murder as such initially, it was, a, it was an attack, a brutal attack uh, on a defenceless woman. Twenty years on, local newspaper editor Don Hale begins examining the conviction of Stephen Downing for Wendy's murder. At this point, Stephen has been in prison for two decades. The police officer was left there until fairly late on when they were interviewing, still interviewing Stephen, really. They were told, right, just bag everything up and come back to the barber shop, you know. So there's a possibility everything was cross-contaminated. Mm. Now, a few days later, when Wendy died from her injuries, the police returned to the scene of crime and replaced everything as near as damn it to the original photographs they had. And this seemed to be, obviously, a major cause of concern because, again, of cross-contamination 
um, things not necessarily where, where they, they would be. But um, you can see how badly bloodstained the weapon was. Um, and th this was used it's later shocking, on. shocking, even in black and white, it is. It is, it yeah. It is quite shocking to see, you know, the middle of a middle, middle of a day, middle of the countryside. Yeah. And just... But yeah, the, the whole thing, the whole scene of crime was a complete disaster. Under close analysis, Don uncovers what he believes are holes and problems with the conviction. Problems with the confession that the police extracted from Stephen on the day of the murder, which was a central evidence at the trial. I think once they got a confession out of Downing, that was it. They thought, well, we don't need to do anything more. We'll just bag everything up, bring it back and carry on. And it seems to be the same, much the same with the, um, the overall inquiry, house mm. to house, and lots of similar things you would expect with any investigation. Don thinks there are also problems with the forensics and contradictions between how the victim, Wendy Saul, was portrayed in court and the lifestyle and friends that she's rumoured to have had. Contradictions which may have given someone other than Stephen a reason to hurt her. The next step for Don was to look again at the eyewitness accounts. There were many people around and Don wasn't convinced that the police had interviewed everybody who might have seen something and might have had vital evidence about the crime. Especially once they had a good suspect, Stephen, in a police cell. So many lines of inquiry were just blatantly ignored, not followed up. And this is what annoyed most people in and around that area at that time. Um, obviously they accepted in terms of what the police were saying, that he'd made a confession, that's fine. But they were still surprised within hours of the attack that these house-to-house -house and other inquiries weren't done. They should have flooded that area with police straight away, got dogs out or whatever, um, and certainly for the next you know, few days or a week, questioned as many people as they could on that estate and found out what they found out. And that would have brought a different story in straight away. I've explored these issues in previous episodes of this series. But I think once they got the medical reports and the pathology report, uh, which they got literally within hours of, of Wendy's death, that confirmed quite openly that um, the confession that they got out of him didn't match the, the statement. Stephen wrote Don a detailed account of the day of the attack, as much as he remembered it, from his prison cell. But his version of events was markedly different from the one that the police presented as evidence at the trial. And, you know, we've got Stephen's notes here. He was never asked about any... any uh, you know, did he choke her? Did he grab her from behind? Did he, did he strangle her? Did he kick her? Or whatever, you know. There's evidence to say he wasn't even there when this attack happened, that he was, his alibi was that he was at home in this sort of 10, 15-minute spell when it all happened. And none of that appeared in any of the evidence. Uh, it wasn't mentioned at the trial, and it wasn't in uh, Downing's statement. So, you know, you could put a lot down to a poor defence originally, that they should have been aware of all these factors. But, see, I think, unfortunately, you know, Downing came from the wrong side of the tracks at the time. Seeds of doubt about Stephen's conviction have been sown in Don's mind. When you go through all the facts and figures and look at the timings of the murder, the witness statements, who saw Wendy still alive, uh, which seemingly after Stephen had left the cemetery to go home for his lunch, uh, all these added to the conspiracy theory of maybe he was serving time for somebody else. Maybe there was a... Uh, he fitted the, the bill in terms of they, they wanted to cover up possibly the past of the victim keep it all nicely under wraps so they could blame somebody from the wrong side of the tracks and shut the case down fairly quickly and exp exposing uh, other matters regarding the case. 
Stephen and Wendy were both, to some extent, outsiders in the town and they stood out against the norm. Can you just give us a little snapshot where where, where Bakewell sort okay. of fits socio-geographically? Because yeah, it's, so, a, it's yes, a unique place. It is unique, yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful place. Oh, know, yeah. Please don't, don't be put <laughs> off going to Bakewell. I mean, it's be, um, because obviously we have the Bakewell uh, puddings and uh, various other things. Yeah, that um, pudding, not tart. Yes, exactly, exactly, a pudding. Very middle-aged, very tweed, very uh, twin set and pearls, all that kind of stuff. So my name is Tony Blockley, I'm Head of Policing at the University of Derby. When I retired, I was Chief Superintendent or the Head of Crime. So I had responsibility for all crime in and around Derbyshire. So Bakewell is in, in sort of mid-Derbyshire. It's between Matlock and Buxton uh, on the, the north and south. Uh, to the uh, east is sort of Sheffield, Chatsworth, Sheffield, and to the west is sort of the peaks and, and everything else. It's... it's it's a beautiful spot. You know, the River Wye runs through it. It's uh, picturesque. Ducks on the river. You know, it's got that whole kind of feel to it, whether you're in coffee shops and, and that kind of stuff. So it's very, very middle-class England, without then a it's doubt. Got, then it's, and particularly then it's got its big council estate as yeah, well. Yeah, so to the, to the side of it, there is a, there is a council. And this is where Stephen lived uh, and actually where the cemetery is part of. It sort of borders the edge of the council estate. But even so, you know, it's... Um, it's it, yes, it is what it is. It's a council estate. It's um, I don't know what your visions of a council estate are, but the, the the council estate fitted with the image of the area, and I think that's probably the best way to describe well, I mean, it. Lo- lo- lots of lots of Derbyshire towns were, yeah. were like that. I mean, the well, one I you know grew up in was exactly the same. Yeah, it's you social know, housing, social isn't housing, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. It's no, possible, absolutely. It? I suppose if you looked at um, Bakewell from a from a particular viewpoint, it was probably somewhere to aspire to live and, you know, be part of. It was that kind of look down your nose, you're not, you're not dressed right. Yes, good, exactly. Yeah. So for Wendy, so going back to Wendy mm. then, for her, she was outgoing, she was quirky, she was what she was. You know, she didn't necessarily fit the prototype or style of Bakewell at that time, which was very, you know, prim and proper you know, church on a Sunday, that kind of stuff. So she didn't necessarily fit that mould. Yeah, and conservative with yeah. a small C. And yes. quite, well, I think quite... it was conservative with a large C. <laughs> but, but yes. And gender roles, I imagine, were, were quite yes. entrenched. Well, the 70s was very yes, much around true. that, wasn't it? it but was... even more so, especially if she's come from yes. a city in the... yes. as well. It's a different... Yeah, and, there's, and, there, and there are certain expectations. And those gender roles were played out not just by the men, but by the women. You know, the, yeah. the women would, would expect a certain standard of behaviour for a woman. You know, historically, we've grown up with this gendered mm. identity, haven't we? And that's that's really powerful and, and very powerful in the likes of Bakewell. For her to be walking around, and I mean, I, I think one, one person described her walking around with no shoes on, that kind of stuff. So it was a bit very kind free. of hippie, mm. free spirit, that kind of stuff. And she was an attractive lady. I think what happens is, doesn't it, when you see that, then people start to talk and make up stories. So they might not know, oh, have you seen such and such a body? Look at what they're doing today, or the da-da-da-da, and all that kind of... And they become the talk of the town for the wrong reasons, but without any substance. And I think that's what Wendy suffered from. She was being talked about, this is my opinion, mm-hmm. she was being talked about and portrayed as a particular individual, but it didn't have any substance to it. Don's next step was to trace Wendy's movements on the day of the attack by talking to witnesses. Conveniently, and by a remarkable stroke of fate, the first person she spoke to that day was Stephen Downing's father, Ray. Or well, that's what Ray said. 
she had tights on and stocking, uh, men's socks over and dirty white flints ones. Right, this is the interview, the, the, the very first recorded interview with, with uh, Ray Downing, Steve's father, where he's talking about um, how he first came across Wendy on the day of the, the attack. And at ten past, I said, is everybody on? He said, yes. I said, you shouldn't be on this one. She'll usually catch the next one. And she replied, yes, but I've got uh, some business to see to in Bakewell before I start work. Uh, he's a bus driver. He went to Yulegrave and she got on the bus. I think the fare was eight pounds and she had a note, a pound note. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't change that. You're just having staff. So if you... She had five pounds. She said, pay me the five pence. I'll give you a five feet ticket. And then if you'll pay the, eight, uh, the other three feet, when you see me, I'll be okay. And she put the... Uh, my name's David G. I was a member of the Derbyshire Police for um, just over 30 years, 32 years actually. Ray was very helpful, um, but he said some strange things like um, on the day of the, the day that Wendy was killed, he actually, she caught his bus. Yes. Well, why would he say that? These are all ideas that can run away with you if you're not careful. But why would he put himself seeing her that day? And we couldn't, we couldn't actually tracked down because of the absence of um, any any empirical data about, about where Ray was at all during the, the period of the attack. Right. So that was another, what, where was he? What was happening there? I'm not saying he was there. I'm just, we don't know where he was. Yeah. So uh, there were those sort of um, gaps we couldn't close. There were no witness statements from the bus. And obviously, in 1973, there was no CCTV. But we do know that she arrived for work at the Forestry Commission in Bakewell. Yeah. This is where Wendy worked, and I think they, sh the, they shared offices, the Forestry Commission, with uh, with the blood donning service. Wendy spent the morning working in the office. There were a lot of claims that mm. she'd had a row with one of the boyfriends the night before, and possibly even on the day when we knew there was an argument in the office and her boss had seen somebody else at the other side of a, of a screen, and there were raised voices. Uh, it was a male. Wendy Sewell left a note for her boss saying that she was going for a breath of fresh air and walked out of the office in Bakewell on her final journey, which is the headline, where she worked as a clerk typist at about 12.40pm on Wednesday, September the 12th, 1973. She'd had an argument at work with a another, there'd been raised voices, she'd rushed out giving her boss uh, a note, say, uh, giving the impression she was dashing to meet somebody, and bearing in mind what Ray said, that she was uh, wanted to sort something out, she got some business to attend to in Bakewell before work. All these little inconsistencies could have been investigated and may have led to a another person being involved. She was seen walking up the butts past the kissing gate at 12 
50 p.m. But to the quarry, isn't is it? A, yeah, an identi- and she was identified by several witnesses strolling along this route and into the cemetery. Stephen Downing, who was just finishing his lunch, also confirmed seeing her by the Garden of Remembrance and later as he walked out of the cemetery to exchange his pot bottle, recalled seeing her go behind the consecrated chapel. It is unclear as to whether she had a pre-arranged meeting with another person, but a witness who was approaching from the other end of the cemetery claimed Stephen was walking out of the gates and saw Wendy with her arms around a tall, ginger, fair-haired man behind the chapel. What is suggested is that minutes later she was attacked and found battered and crawling between gravestones by some small children before being discovered a few minutes later by Stephen Downing. Workman, police officer and an ambulance man soon arrived on the scene and tried to restrain the woman who, despite being badly injured, was seen thrashing about, um, resisting attempts to help her before being taken to Chesterfield Royal Hospital. She died from her injuries two days later. No, no, no. I mean, no, nobody deserves what what's happened to to, to Wendy. Um, but the fact is that she had got into arguments, or at least one argument we know of, on the day of her murder with a man, uh, an unknown man in her office who'd gone to see her deliberately. She'd left in a bit of a rush, and I, it, it seems quite evident that she was uh, arranging to meet somebody to sort something out. Um, she maybe have had conversation in that morning, and maybe had made arrangements. So, well, look. You know, pop round and see him at lunchtime. We'll have a chat, whatever. It wasn't resolved, or she refused to discuss it at the office, and maybe said, "Look, I'll see you up at the cemetery, or whatever." And it, the impression given from some of her friends was that you know, um, she'd had some sort of problem with some with a lover, and she wanted to sort it out. Now, whether she'd finished with somebody and they weren't happy about it, or what, I don't know, but. For so, for a man to turn, to go to her office, obviously knew who she was, where she was, where she worked, and wanted to resolve something. And within minutes, she's left the office, dashing up to a cemetery, which is a remoteish place, but within a a busy council estate, um, where you know is an ideal meeting place, possibly to to meet somebody to sort out an argument. It's also the ideal place to get inspiration for a headstone for the grave of your recently deceased father which is what Wendy's husband and some of her other friends believe was a real reason for a visit to the cemetery that lunchtime. And you see that path going up there with the railings? Yeah. She'll have walked up there and ah. it would take you up to the top. It's called Butts Road. And it comes out just by the side of the cemetery. So she would only have to walk, get to the top of there and just turn into the cemetery. So it would take, what, less than 10 minutes. So this is the uh, place where Wendy Sewell was murdered in uh, 1973. And the fact is, it had happened so close to home, overlooked by all these houses. Lots of people um, you know, saw something or uh, couldn't help but see something, really. Witnesses coming on, lunchtime, a busy time, uh, a, 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 a thorough... It was like Piccadilly Circus, you know. We're talking at a period in time where, you know... Not everyone had TVs. If they did, there wasn't any TV in the middle of the day. No, very few t- televisions, very few... Radio. Yeah, I mean, the, we had no mobile phones in those days. Very few people had any phones. Your phone box was was the main point of call for, for most roads. It was a central box used by people. You, you had queues of people putting money in and all, all sorts of things, you know. You couldn't really wait for a call in. You could only call out, mainly. But a whole range of things, you know, where people were, were expecting, uh, you know, when it becomes a murder... But also that people are... 
you know, it was the middle of the day. Yeah. There were a lot of people, particularly a lot of women, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the house, that worked at home, mm. um, be there, would be, would be looking out and would be talking yeah, to yeah. each other. Well, A lot of witnesses, potentially. Well, I mean, a lot of women weren't working as well in those days, so... The obvious thing, they were like washerwomen, they were on the corners, like the Les, home, Les not, Dawson not type thing, the, you know, yeah. with the, the arms folded. And they'd be having a chat over the over the, the, the fence or whatever, talking about what, what's gone off and all the rest. And this, of course, would have been a major talking point, you know, of all this. And, of course, everything would would then say, oh, well, yeah, we've been to the police, but uh, Stephen's admitted it. And I was struck by reading the book about how important buses are and yeah. how reliable they were, because, yeah, yeah. you know, people know where they are because yeah. the buses were on time, and then, oh, no, the 12.02 was coming in from Matlock. Yeah, yeah. You were sort of asking around Bakewell to find out, the kind of, to get together this, this picture you just described. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're dealing with a, a, a family here that are trying to protect their son. And, and are claiming that it's a miscarriage of justice. So you've got to have that sort of guard in your head in terms of, you know, have they had chance to think about it and, and work things around? But I say, when you look back at the official documents and what they've said at the time and what was said in court, etc., it was clearly accepted that he'd left, Stephen had left the cemetery at 108 and re- didn't return to about 120. So you've got a time frame there. Um, so the police are saying that this ha- the murder happened between 1250 and 108. Now, from other evidence that we've now seen witness statements, they have seen Stephen. They've also seen Wendy still alive. Now, the time to get up that hill from 12.50 to, to get to the, from the kissing gate at 12.50 to get to the cemetery would have been at least 12.55, possibly 12.57, depending on the speed you, you, you walk, because it's quite a steep hill. Mm. She wasn't running, you know, it's, and even if you were, you know, um, it's not something you could run easily. So five minutes on, on top of 12.50 is... Don analyses the day of the crime, not, not who saw what enough. and when, so in great detail in his book. So if you want to delve deeper into the timeline, you can find all his information in the book Murder in the Graveyard. Now, other people who've looked over the, um, the fence and have crisscrossed backwards and forwards to work have seen her still alive. Stephen says he saw her alive as he left the cemetery. We've got other witnesses who've come in since, um, the, the Bibby family, uh, two young children who were playing in the cemetery at the time, and a stepsister of them who went to look for a dog that was missing, who have since added fresh evidence to say that this was sort of after one o'clock. I think there were some question marks over some of the witnesses memories of what happened and there were lots of conflicting accounts of who was where where people were seen some people said Stephen was walking away from the cemetery and Wendy Sewell was seen with somebody else arm in arm um and so you know there are lots of different versions of events and it's very difficult to say really what what the truth would be but I do think there was some question marks over Stephen Downing's involvement and and why he was there and and what happened because the timings seem off. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A brutal murder, a wrongful conviction, a 27-year fight for justice. Read the full story that inspired this podcast. In Murder in the Graveyard, investigative journalist Don Hale tells the story of his relentless fight to overturn the longest miscarriage of justice the UK has ever seen. Delve deeper into the case that shocked the nation. Murder in the Graveyard. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audio narrated by author Don Hale himself. Downing retracted his statement 13 days later, saying he couldn't hide the truth any longer. He claimed he was attacked himself as he went to the aid of Mrs Sewell, who was found battered and half-naked across the cemetery path. He said then that he was approached from behind and a sharp implement was pressed in his back. A voice said, there are two of us, have you found it? The person then threatened to do the same thing to Downing's sister if he talked. Downing claimed he saw the assailant running off into Catcliffe Woods and described a tall, fair-haired man with a denim jacket disappearing into the undergrowth. And that's the woods next to the path isn't yeah. it? in the picture, which is above. Which is yeah. above on the news story. The description of a bloodstained man running like a bat out of hell had been given by several other witnesses at about the same time of the incident. In Downing's original statement, apart from a discrepancy about the number of blows and an unsupported reference to the sexual attack, the statement also said he returned to the unconsecrated chapel to fetch his coat and a pot bottle before calmly walking out of the main gates where he was seen and talked with three other witnesses. Pop his fizzy drinks, yeah. lemonade apparently. So no mention was made of them being in a frenzied state or with blood staining on his clothes and boots. He then claimed he went to his home just three minutes away and had a surprise meeting with his mother. About ten minutes later he returned to the cemetery and found Mrs Sewell and whilst feeling for a pulse turned over the body. She was still alive and reared up shaking her head violently causing Downing to fall back where he said he was grabbed by an unknown assailant who threatened his sister.
when Stephen had found the body, or found, found the, the victim lying semi-conscious, he was then poked in the back himself, Stephen, by a stick, which I think was probably the sharp bit from the pickaxe handle, like a knife. It was quite a long shaft. I think he was poked in the back with that and told, don't turn around or the same thing will happen to your sister. Well, well, that's the same what... thing that happened to Wendy. Yeah, yeah, be yeah. Beaten. Yeah. Christine Downing, Stephen's sister, was 14 in 1973. Stephen only mentioned this incident two weeks after his arrest, when he'd already been charged with Wendy's murder. There were no other witnesses or evidence to confirm or deny Stephen's report of these assailants. It's been 46 years since, and they've never been traced. He then panicked to say, ran back to the gatekeeper and, and they got the alarm. Now, that latter part didn't come out till a week or two later. And when he put this to the solicitor and said, look, I, I've retracted my statement because it's not true. They, they've they forced me into it, et cetera, et cetera. And this is what happened. And, and this is, I got poked in the back, et cetera. His own solicitors didn't think this was credible by the barrister, that he didn't think this was, was potentially credible and he should have said something before. But I think... He was probably suffering from that post-traumatic stress of what had happened, that severe shock in, in that state of uh, finding the body, etc. He would have probably said things just to please... He was in pain himself, and to get these people literally off his back, the police off his back, he would have gone along with the saying, look, Stephen, just if you say you've done it, you know, you can go, you can have a rest, you, you know, can get to bed now, have a rest, you have some treatment. Uh, Wendy will tell us in the morning if it wasn't you, and, uh, you know, everything's OK. Yeah. And he didn't know how badly injured she was. He's not you know, a medical expert, etc. He'd seen, you know, after finding her once and then seeing her wandering round and then seeing her thrashing about in the ambulance, he might have thought, well, she'd be mm. OK tomorrow. Yeah. You know, if me and you had an argument and, mm. or, you know, you were pushing away, oh, you know, I'm fed up with it. You walk out the door and if somebody saw you straight away, you'd still be a bit huffy-puffy, wouldn't yes, you? Yes, the thing we haven't really talked about is people passing Stephen said he seemed... Yeah, Hard. ambling away, perfectly, perfectly normal. Chats to his mum about baby head jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing, nothing different about his, Not his style. Not as he just bludgeoned a woman no. to death. I mean, the only way he was sort of upset was when he ran back to the gatehouse keep and saying, look, there's a woman, young, young woman who's been attacked on the path here. This is a hard call. It's not always a given that serenity equals innocence because one of the things regularly reported about violent acts is how calm the assailants have seemed after the event. Perhaps it's that you don't care or it can be that the act hasn't registered yet, the horror has yet to sink in and you're just numb. But you can't equate emotion or lack of it with guilt. At what point did people start trying to intimidate you? Well, initially, I mean, it wasn't intimidation. It was support. I mean, as soon as people knew I was on the estate asking questions about it, uh, I was getting lots and lots of calls to say, oh, will you call at my house? Uh, I want to tell you about the police have made a complete pig's ear of this, etc. And they didn't come to my house, and Mrs So-and-so had got this, and Mrs So-and-so got that, and there's a, a running man scene running away from the scene of crime you want to talk to. And the whole, you know, everybody, everything seemed to happen, really. But 
And this I was mean, straight after. This was within, within, within a few days, within a few days, a week, you know. And the more I went on the on the estate, the more people were contacting me. Ray, Stephen's father, was lending a hand gathering information, or perhaps misinformation, depending on your point of view. And Ray obviously was a taxi driver. He was visiting pubs and picking people up, whatever. He'd probably be, uh, you know, telling people. Oh, yeah, it's quite you know. gobby. He was. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know. Oh, he, he's you know he's onto the cases. And but a lot of people were saying, well, thank God for that. You know, somebody needs to do it. He's serving time for somebody else. That was a constant thing that came out. Well, he's he didn't time do it. For... Yeah, he didn't do it. You know, you know, no, we did, don't you? And all this sort of thing. And you know, they they wouldn't necessarily say a name to me, but they all had an idea of who it was. Quite a few were sort of naming this running man as the same name, and um, you know the 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 woman that was um, that had had actually identified at the time, Mrs. Hadford Lewis Hadford. You know, she contacted me and said, "Look, you know, when are you coming to to see me?" And who's Louisa? She's she there. she was an old lady, uh, bright as a button, you know, sharp as a knife, sort of thing. When are you coming to me? You know, I've got I've got information you need to to hear. You know. And, you know, I went round to see her and she, and she says, you know, I know who this man was that was running away. Yeah, I can tell you. And I've, I've got a, a cutting of him. And she got a cutting that she kept and said, you know, she gave the same cutting to the Batewell yeah, police station. A newspaper cutting. Yeah, of, of the man. It was a photograph of this young man at school. Louisa Hadfield had given the police the newspaper cutting, which identified the man in question at the time of the first investigation. But the police, with Stephen under arrest, apparently did nothing with this information about the running man. 20 years later, Don compiled a shortlist of persons of interest, conveniently named after Colours of the Rainbow, like reservoir dogs, but in the Peak District. Don puts the running man top of the list of suspects and decides to use his platform as an editor of a newspaper to take the case public. Doubt it well. I'd forgotten about half of these people. So, what, so we're looking at a, a microfiche of the Matlock Mercury from January 1995. Um, innocent or guilty, the Home Secretary is to be asked to reopen the file on Stephen Leslie Downing, the teenager convicted of the Batewell Cemetery murder of Mrs. Wendy Sewell in 1973. A portfolio containing a wealth of new evidence is to be presented to the authorities next week by Stephen's parents, Ray and Winnie Sir Downing, of Stanton View Batewell, in a bid to secure his freedom. Wow. Mrs. Downing told the Mercury, Stephen's always said the truth will come out one day. We believe this new evidence shows considerable doubt on his conviction. And this, and this was the start. Yeah. So this is the, the very first um, uh, piece I put in the Matlock Mercury, 27th of January, 1995. Innocent or guilty, big headline, question mark. My preliminary report, based on my findings over a six-month period or something like that, um, and I wanted people to come forward and say you know, what they remembered from that day, uh, what evidence they had, you know, did they think the police were right uh, with the conviction, you know, what's happened since, uh, anything else has come to light. And it, it was really, uh, uh, you know, uh, like throwing a pebble into, into the water to try and get people to do it. But the response was, was quite amazing. You know, the phone never stopped ringing, people calling into the office, all sorts of people. And it seemed, to, you know, the general groundswell is that he was serving time for somebody else. And people mentioning names of other people that were seen around the, the, the time that according to the statements weren't around at the time, you know, and things that Ray, uh, that Stephen's father said, um, you know, 
snippets and things that were, were, were put in there, they were able to qualify certain things and say, yeah, we also saw the bus at a, a stop at that time. We saw somebody suspicious. There was a guy in the phone box dialing, you know, the old dialing things with gloves on, you know, which you wouldn't normally do and you things like that. You put your fingers in the holes. Yeah. Um, you know, it's very difficult to dial with gloves on, I should imagine. And a whole range of things like... Um, uh, you know, car unusual cars seen hanging around over that particular time and things, uh, descriptions of suspicious characters. I mean, bearing in mind this was a small council estate, the the murder scene was covered two sides of this, so it was overlooked from, uh, well, certainly main one with Burton Edge, but look, overlooked from two sides, and so many people from those houses had got stories to tell. The police didn't come to their house; they didn't do house to house inquiries. They didn't do sweeps of the area. There's so many things that they were saying. And I don't know, I'm, I probably spent the next couple of months or so visiting a lot of these people. Uh, many of them was, were then sort of uh, women in sort of probably late 50s, 60s, in in, in 70s, uh, because this was like 20 years on from the, from the murder. But I'd still kept cigarette cartons and things where they'd scribbled down uh, mm. something suspicious or whatever they were doing. And they're all more saying the same thing. They went into the police station with this evidence or get, you know, told them what, what they'd seen or heard or whatever, and they're all turned away. One witness that spoke to us remembers it differently, though. I noticed in Dom's book as well, he said that people say they, there were no house-to-house, house, but there certainly was on our road. I decided to make an appeal for my own witnesses when I was making this podcast. And Janita Morris contacted me after I put a notice about the case in the Derbyshire Times. So tell me about the the day of the attack on Wendy. The murder happened when I was 10. I used to go home for my dinner every day. And uh, I, I, I was going home about quarter past 12. And I walked right past the cemetery along the top of it, along Burton Edges. I walked along the edge of the cemetery and down the bus. And I only passed one person. That, well, that's all I can remember. And um, I obviously walked back up again. And as I was walking along Burton Edges, I thought I heard a scream. And of course, something like that sticks in your mind <laughs> when you, you're that age. Obviously, our family knew the Downing family and my granddad was working in the cemetery that day because he worked for the council. We knew Wendy's mum. She worked with my dad. So you passed one person. Who was the person you passed and what did they they look like? Was it a man, woman? Yes, it was a man. I'd have said he was probably in his 60s. Well, he seems that age to me. He wasn't very tall. He was wearing a grey raincoat, I think, and he'd got very dark, slicked hair, like it was brill-creamed. Um, I do remember him because I, I looked at him and I thought, you know, as a 10-year-old, he looked a bit scary. He just, to me, as a child, I just thought, oh, I don't like like him, but... You know, I'm sure he was a very nice man, but he was somebody I sort of recognised from knocking about Bakewell. Couldn't have told you his name, but he did look familiar. I got a visit from the police that night. Well, our household did, and I remembered seeing somebody, so I made a statement. Can you remember how you felt when you heard about the attack and then that Wendy had died? 
I felt quite excited because, like, nothing very exciting happened in Bakewell. And I know that sounds awful, but as a 10-year-old child, it, it was a big thing. But I think most adults were quite, well, very shocked because, as I say, nothing like that happened. It It was a very quiet place, really. And then I think people were a little bit afraid in case, well, you know... Is somebody about till I suppose we heard about Stephen, and then I think there was a feeling of relief that somebody had been arrested for it. So, your experience of, of people in Bakewell wasn't this overwhelming support for Stephen? I noticed in Dom's book, he made lots of references to Bakewell people supporting Stephen. Um, that wasn't my um, knowledge of the case and the knowledge of people in Bakewell. A lot of people didn't see it that way. So I thought, well, who are these people that he says are supporting the Downings? So who was your granddad? What's your granddad's name? My granddad was called Alfred Marshall. Um, no relation to John Marshall? No. As I say, my granddad worked in the churchyard and... He was working there that day and he'd gone home for his dinner. And there's been a lot said about the timings of this murder, but my granddad's lunch hour was 12 till 1. And he, he was usually pretty good on his times. And he got back up there and I, I think it was Herbert Dawson said to him, there's been a murder, they found a woman, not a murder then at that point, but they found a woman, she's been attacked and Stephen's done it. And my granddad said, what do you mean? And he said, oh, well, we came back from lunch and he'd got blood on him and he says he's done it. So obviously my granddad told us, as you would. So it was soon round Bakewell what had happened. The Mercury's campaign generated more leads, both authored and anonymous. What's the, what's the headline now? So more evidence to doubt conviction. As the weeks go by, more and more evidence is slowly being compiled, which continues to throw doubt on Stephen Downing's murder conviction. Two anonymous letters have been forwarded to Derbyshire Police, one of which gives confirmation that Downing had left the cemetery before Mrs Wendy Sewell was attacked. The first letter clearly gives all the necessary information not previously disclosed, including the names of suspects and other persons seen in or around the cemetery at the critical time. The statement supports Downing's original claims and the police have admitted that if this person came forward then Downing would almost certainly be set free. A second letter and phone call supports the original claim, although full details cannot be published as the campaign for the re-examination of his conviction has been referred to the Home Office and Derbyshire Police. It can only be revealed that funny phone calls and threats have been made against Mercury editor Don Hale, Stephen Downing's parents and a close friend of the family. But not all attention is good attention. Yeah, about a week later after the article came out, uh, Stephen wrote to me, says, uh, Don, please excuse this letter being handwritten, only I'm not really in the mood for typing after hearing the threats to you. Richard Brailsford and his family. Now, Richard was about the same age as Stephen and was an old school friend, and they kept in touch. Um, and also the threats against me if I'm released, saying that he was going, you know, Stephen was going to be killed. He was a dead man walking. Um, what is really bugging me is not knowing if my family have also been receiving threats. 
is not something my mother would admit to if asked. Can you enlighten me? Uh, if my family's under threat too, do you think the police will give them round-the-clock protection and move them to a safe house? The last thing I want for one of them is to answer the door and take the full impact of a shotgun. I don't want to, that to happen to anyone, not just my family. I know it sounds rather dramatic and something uh, you would come to expect in a film script, but I'm desperate to know that they're safe. Don believed he wasn't the only one convinced that his investigation was making progress and getting close to the truth. And for some, that could spell danger. He was absolutely worried to death there. I'd had threats to me, uh, and when I contacted the, the parents, they, they said, well, we don't really want it passed on to Stephen, but, yeah, we've we've been warned really? off as well. And lots of people I'd interviewed had also had death threats and threats, intimidation, uh, to keep your mouth shut and what have you, particularly people like the, the Bibby family and stuff like that. And they were key witnesses. Yeah. Anyone who got anything credible to say, and maybe had, uh, some had, had been mentioned in articles or whatever, or my visits to the estate were, were being noted by people. And quite often, you know, within minutes of getting back from visits to, to witnesses, I was then getting a phone call to say, right, that's it, you know, you've had your last warning. You know, if you appear on there again, you're, you know, you're dead and all this sort of stuff. And it was all getting quite heavy. And, of course, people, you know, it was, it was forcing people to back off a little bit because, you know, they didn't want to become embroiled within what, what, this. Both, both the witnesses and, yeah. and people working on the campaign? Because Richard, yeah. Richard was... Uh, sadly he's passed away now hasn't he Richard Bursford yes he, he died about three years ago with, with cancer unfortunately yes. but he, he helped me tremendously I mean he, he was a big supporter with with the Downing family before I came on board um, when I got involved with it he he was um, very good at uh, getting signatures on petitions and things I could see him ahead I heard the screech of his brakes as he hit the brakes with all his might and it's like, and everything was clattering and banging and he went smack into the side of this other truck. He told me about incidents which sounded terrifying, attacks and attempts on his life and escalation of threats as, Don believed, someone felt he was getting near to freeing Stephen and revealing the truth. And you could see sort of smoke rising from it because... Whoa. And you could smell the burning rubber, etc. You know, and I just swung round, went out, and back, and I was absolutely drenched in sweat and what have you. And I realised that, you know, my life had been hanging by a thread. You know, it was as simple as that. And uh, you know, oh, it's pretty obvious then that people were trying to kill me. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, after that, I had two other hit and run attempts. Um, one was, you, te you tend to think. You don't try and think for the worst, really, because you're in a small town, you're in a small newspaper, um, you, you're covering a story, you know. Um, Stephen's been convicted of murder, he's in jail. Why should somebody want to kill me? It's not a Bruce Willis film. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, but it makes you, it made me more determined to think, well, somebody doesn't want me to investigate this case. There's something more to it. Did someone want to silence him too? Do you think there's still potentially issues with us stirring up this mud? Oh, I think so. I think that there always will be an undercurrent. Whilst people are still alive that were sort of, I won't say involved with it, but you know, involved in terms of the periphery and knowing what really went on and knowing uh, either Stephen or Wendy or other people involved with this, um, they are still in fear. There, there is still an element of fear in that town. There will be threats, there will be intimidation, I'm sure, if... Derbyshire Times run a feature on it, pod, podcast and things like that. I would certainly advise anybody to watch the back 
uh, about this um, because it's a dangerous area. There's certain elements that want this kept quiet forever and I think because of previous police connections and what have you, they're not, you're not going to get much support, really. You know, but it's still uh, an unsolved murder. It, it's still yeah, worthy of investigation. But it, it seems as though they want to drag this out until everybody that was uh, you know, available at that time uh, has popped the socks. It just seems unbelievable, really. Reporter, Murder in a Graveyard is presented and produced by me, Lucy Ditchmont. It's mixed by Dave Dodd. The music is composed and performed by Edwin Pearson. The executive producer is Matt Hall. And reporter, Murder in a Graveyard is a wireless studios production. If you like this podcast, please feel free to rate, review and recommend it to your friends. And if you want to delve deeper into the story, why not visit our website, reporterpodcast.com. William Tyrrell was a three-year-old boy who disappeared from the township of Kendall on the New South Wales mid-north coast on 12 September 2014. Police have been told he was outside playing one minute and gone the next. His disappearance has become one of the most puzzling investigations in Australian history. It has been going on now for almost five years. Millions of dollars have been spent... The strike force at one point had 26 full-time detectives. Hundreds more around Australia have been exploring 600 possible suspects. And what has all that been for? William is still missing. My name is Caroline Overington. This investigation, Nowhere Child, is available now. To hear more, just search for Nowhere Child in your podcast app. 